0: Hello and welcome to episode four of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shane Campbell-Stayton. I'm an evolutionary biologist and National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow. I'm joined in the lab, as always, by my good friend and partner in crime, Arian Darby. Arian is a marketing manager at Warner Brothers Entertainment Group, home to all your favorite DC comic book superheroes. This episode is the first of two parts focusing on the classic movie and book series, Jurassic Park. We'll spend this episode chatting with evolutionary biologist, MacArthur Fellow, and author of How to Clone a Mammoth, Dr. Beth Shapiro. We talk about ancient DNA, cloning, and de-extinction, the biology of resurrecting ancient species. So strap in, sit back, and in the immortal words of Samuel L. Jackson,
1: Hold on to your butts.
0: Because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So do you remember when Jurassic Park came out, the movie?
1: Yeah, the original, 1993. Yeah. Are we dating ourselves right now? I'll yeah. date myself. I was a, I was a young whippersnapper. <laughs> I, was, I was around the age of eight when the original Jurassic Park came out. And I'll tell you this, there's only been two movies when I was a kid that I went to go see. That I talked my parents into seeing because they were like really strict about like the rating system for everything for yeah. video games, for movies, for uh, CDs or, or cassette tapes even back then. But two movies. Number one was Batman. Uh huh. Original Batman. Michael Keaton had to see it. I grew up on sort of the '60s, '70s Adam West, you know, Bam Pow whatever <laughs> era. Yeah. Uh, and I was just in love with Batman, so I talked him into that. And the other one was Jurassic Park. Uh-huh. Dinosaurs all day, had to see it. Didn't make it through the entire movie. I had to run.
0: Oh, but it was like I, that.
1: I cut out. I cut out. <laughs> Hung in there too. I, I found out like, you know, maybe a couple of years later when I was kind of finally bold enough to like sit through it that I almost made it to the end. But the part that got me was the Raptors with the kids. In the kitchen.
0: Yeah. That About is...
1: 15 minutes to the end, I tapped out. Like I, I made it through the T Rex. I was like, you know, face buried in my armpit, <laughs> head tucked under my dad or my mom. Like the noise of the T-Rex was just like insane. But like I made it all the way through, right up until the raptors hunting the kids in the kitchen. Jimmy, yeah. what is it? It's a Velociraptor. That scene—it was too up, much. I was like, "We gotta go."
0: Yeah, yeah. I Can't. remember that, that scene where, like, you know, they they open the the door to the you know to the kitchen, and they yeah. come, in, and then the velociraptor like tapping its claw on yeah. the uh, on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. It was Looking. too much. Yeah. I, I was
0: like, "Why? Why do you? Why you gotta taunt the kids? Like, just hunt them, be a normal animal. Why you gotta be all cerebral about it?" So what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh Sweet. man. GP. The, the, it was, I remember Jurassic Park. Yeah, it was it was so epic though. I remember the biggest thing to me about Jurassic Park was the CGI, right? And I just remember it just seemed like there was nothing up until that point. It was like a completely revolutionary film because of the CGI. And remember, like at the time, you know, when I was watching it, I was like, I was probably I was well, I was, if you were eight, I was eight. Um, you know, watching it, I was like did they actually bring back dinosaurs for this movie? And just because the, the CGI was just absolutely so groundbreaking and incredible. So with the CGI, you would think that, you know, since the early nineties that, you know, we would have sort of left that, that technology in the dust by now. Cause it was avatar came out like 10 years later and that was pretty revolutionary with the CGI. And, you know, now everything is shown in 3d and IMAX and, you know, but I remember when I was in graduate school, they re-released the first Jurassic Park movie in 3D, and I went to see it, and I was still absolutely blown away by, like, the amazing graphics in this movie. And, like, I mean, granted, some of that might have been just, like, the nostalgia of seeing Jurassic Park on film again, um, but I still think it, it just, it's an absolutely, absolutely amazing graphically done film
1: yeah i mean it's incredible uh i I think the work still held like holds up today like very strongly and just even looking back at the film recently you know spielberg and the rest of the team did a lot of amazing work with just suspense and i think they pick and picked and chose their moments well when they went full cg and showed the animals in all their scale and glory. Uh, versus when they used various kind of little moments and probably props to maintain the intensity, but uh, I would imagine not blow through the film budget because work that good that still seems to hold up good today in 1993 dollars probably cost a fortune. Yes. Uh, But, you know, I I think about the opening scene where they're uh, transporting the Velociraptor for the first time and you know they get the dude to stand up on the cage this one lucky guy they're like "Yeah, all right gatekeeper <laughs> hop on up there buddy <laughs> and he's the only dude without like a weapon by himself like in charge of like opening the gate and then he like opens the gate and the animal kind of like rushes it real quick
0: gatekeeper
2: Joffrey, raise the gate
1: Um, you know, he kind of slips down and falls, and you know they got that whole thing where there, it's like a tug of war between the Velociraptor and like everybody else, and yeah. the hunter guy's like Shooter, shooter and like his hands like slipping through. But you, you know, <laughs> yeah. you see, like a couple flashes here and there, you see the eye looking around from the Velociraptor and all this, and it's it's really intense. But you know, you also don't see the entire thing, yeah. Um, and it, you're, you're pretty much halfway through the movie till you. Well, I, actually, maybe less than half, because you'll see like some of the, I think, Brontosaurus, or Brachiosaurus, uh, when they first land and yeah. you know their first dinosaur encounter. But then after that, it's not until the T. Rex, yeah, um, which is a big thing,
0: know. right? There's that whole, uh, the whole scene where they're they're doing the the preview tour of the park, and and there's just no dinosaurs. They're not seeing anything, and then, like Jeff yeah, Goldblum yeah, is he's he's like tapping like, on the. Yeah. On the screen, is like, "Yeah." So eventually, you guys are planning on having some dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour, right? Uh,
2: now, eventually, you do plan to have dinosaurs on your on your dinosaur tour, right? Hello, uh, hello, yes. I really hate that man
1: right it's almost a a big joke after that early moment uh when they first land they're like wow there's there's really (laughs) no dinosaurs here yeah um and they stop in front of the t-rex paddock and all that and just the suspense and set up there with the goats and the the water shaking just like these iconic moments uh the trembling of of, you know the the mirror and the car and everything like it's it's just so well done yeah so (laughs) enough
0: to make an eight-year-old Aryan run out of the movie theater
1: Yo, real talk. That was that was the realest joint right there. If it feels real now. Back when I was eight, don't blame me at all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, an Academy Award-winning director <laughs> chase me out of the building. That's cool. Oh man, yeah. that's amazing.
0: So the premise for creating dinosaurs in Jurassic Park is that scientists find mosquitoes trapped in amber from the Cretaceous period. So this is somewhere between. 66 and 145 million years ago, give or take. Those mosquitoes fed on the blood of dinosaurs and the blood meal from those dinosaurs gives the scientists the genetic material they need to clone and resurrect these ancient beasts. But 66 to 145 million years is a really long time for DNA to stick around. So this begs the question, is what they pose... In the books and movies, realistic. So I've reached out to an expert in evolutionary genomics and ancient DNA, Dr. Beth Shapiro. Beth is a professor at UC Santa Cruz, and she's absolutely brilliant. She's al- also a MacArthur Fellow, uh, what's also known as the MacArthur Genius Grant. And I have to say, this is one of my absolute favorite interviews uh, in this entire podcast series so far. So obviously the very first question... I had for, uh, for Beth was, is Jurassic Park possible, right? Can we actually get DNA from a dinosaur? Uh, so let's hear what she had to say about this. One of the central premises of Jurassic Park is that scientists are able to recover dinosaur blood from mosquitoes trapped in amber for millions of years. And this is what they use to engineer the dinosaurs that populate the park but how realistic is this scenario? And is it possible to recover DNA from such an old specimen?
2: It is 100% completely unrealistic. There is no (laughs) DNA in dinosaur remains. Dinosaur remains are rocks, and rocks don't have DNA. (laughs) Okay. There are some teams of people, for example, Barry Schweitzer's group at University of North Carolina, I think, That's where Mary is. Mary Schweitzer's group has found in What they believe is protein sequences that they can recover from dinosaur bones. I remain skeptical that these are authentically from the dinosaur bones rather than from organisms that colonize these bones while the bones are decaying. Um, Like the DNA sequences that we recover from mammoth remains and things like that, these protein fragments are broken into tiny little pieces and chemically modified, and they're very difficult to read and recognize, and to my mind, what she's recovered are just fragmentary bits of things that Are potentially a mixture of different organisms that have contaminated these bones, um, but I don't think it's real dinosaur DNA. And we have a a friendly professional argument, Mary and I, that goes back many years about this. And we've actually even submitted grants together to NSF to say, let us dig into this and get to the bottom of how long these things can survive. So I'd love it if we could get DNA or protein from dinosaurs, but all signs point to no. Biochemistry suggests it's not possible. Everything that we've seen so far as far as DNA decay and that kind of thing would suggest it's it's not not
1: possible you know so she got my hopes up when she was talking about the ability to recover dinosaur DNA fragments Um, because in my mind it immediately triggered the thought that that's what got us into trouble in the first place with all the movies people just got too fancy with the science (laughs) <laughs> they had gaps in the code. They started plugging it in with like amorphous frogs and like camouflage toads and all kinds of other random stuff. And then you get these like psycho killer dinosaurs that are out there. But sometimes for the sake of science and good old fashioned dinosaur fun, you just got to roll the dice and do it anyway. <laughs> I'm I was like, let's let's get the park up and running. Let's get a couple tourists out there. See what happens and, you know, find a nice little island, pay somebody off, buy it up, and do the thing. Uh, but then she said, you know, it's 100%, 110%. I think she left, left extra no room for doubt, I think 110% <laughs> uh, a, a pipe dream. Um, and she, she's killing my spirit. Dr. Shapiro just uh, stabbed my childhood self in the heart. Yeah, I think. I,
0: yeah, uh, I I think that, that happened to pretty much everyone who's listening to this podcast right now. Like we've all just collectively died a little bit inside. Um, but that's I mean you know that's the way things are sometimes. So there's the time component, right? I mean, 66 million years is just a really long time for DNA to sit around intact and have us actually be able to work with it in some productive way. But she told me a little bit more about exactly why it's so difficult to work with DNA from ancient species, not only dinosaurs, but even things that went extinct much more recently, things like you know mammoths and ancient horses and, and things like that. Uh, so let's, let's hear a little bit more about why this process is so difficult.
2: So when an organism dies, the DNA within its cells and its cells begin to decay almost immediately. There's enzymes within our own bodies that will start chopping up and catabolizing the DNA. Um, Remains get colonized by microorganisms that will chop up and catabolize, eat up that DNA, break it down into smaller fragments. And then things like UV radiation from the sun and Uh, Oxygen and hydrolysis will happen, get in there and just break the DNA and cause specific chemical modifications to happen. All of this happens during life, these physical mutagens, but we have proofreading enzymes while we're alive that go along and fix these changes so that every time we go outside and get exposed to UV radiation from the sun, we don't get cancer. Of course, after we die, there's no more energy to drive these proofreading processes and so the damage starts to accumulate. Mm -hmm. So, how long DNA survives depends on how that organism dies and where it dies. We know that in cold places, these processes occur more slowly than they do in hot places. If it's exposed on the surface, you get more de- degradation coming from things like UV radiation and sunlight, and that will break down the DNA faster. A lot of the early work in ancient DNA in my field was done in the Arctic, and that's because these cold environments. Uh, really promote longer-term survival of DNA. Um, Bones get defleshed by predators, and they get buried in the frozen, fine dirt, and they are pretty much sitting in a freezer for thousands and tens of thousands of years. Um, The oldest DNA that we've gotten, about 700,000-year-old DNA from a horse bone that was in this frozen dirt, um, is that way because it was frozen for as long as that bone was buried. But that DNA itself is really not in good condition. If I were to, for example, take a, a swab from the inside of my mouth and sequence that DNA, I could get extremely long fragments of DNA if I used the right type of DNA prep. I could get millions of bases long DNA preps, mm-hmm. and this is cool, this is great, this is what a lot of people are using to do these long-range genome sequencing and assembly projects now. This is awesome technology. With ancient DNA... We are lucky if we get fragments that are 50 bases long. And on average, the fragment length is normally somewhere around 30 to 35 bases. Probably less we throw things away that are shorter than 20 to 29 bases because we can't figure out where they map along a genome with any confidence, so they're not really useful to us. Another problem with ancient DNA is that if I were to pull a a mammoth bone or horse bone or a bison bone out of the permafrost, take a chunk out of that, grind it up and extract DNA and sequence all of the DNA that I extracted, only a tiny part of that would actually be mammoth DNA or horse DNA or bison DNA. The vast majority of DNA that I got out of it would be microbial DNA or plant DNA or even my DNA if I touched that bone uh, like a horrible scientist before i would managed to actually extract DNA from it. Yeah,
0: it's just contamination from, you know, other things that were moving in and around the soil, you know, way before you got there or or once you once you started digging it up.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's also, very likely that when you work with these ancient bones that you can introduce contamination while you're working with it. So people who work in this field tend to have specialized sterile facilities that they work in where we wear full body suits and face masks and hair nets and double layers of gloves, anything we can do to try to stop ourselves from contaminating our samples. It looks like one of those scary CDC labs when you walk in there where everybody's afraid of the microbes they're working with. But in this case, the inverse is true. We are afraid that we are going to contaminate what we're working
0: with. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, so it, it seems like essentially there's just a lot of serendipity involved in actually being able to obtain a good sample from an ancient organism, right? So in the case of dinosaurs, unfortunately, they're just too old. I think, you know, Beth said that the oldest DNA they've been able to recover is on the order of like 700,000 years, right? Which is far short of the 66 million year boundary that we would need to, to get DNA from, you know, from dinosaurs. But then, you know, there's also the fact that, you know, dinosaurs for the most part lived in very warm climates, which is horrible for DNA, you know, and, and a lot of these like tropical climates are, you know, the soil is teeming with microbes, like many, many microbes. And, you know, so even if we were able to recover DNA, most of that DNA would probably not be from dinosaurs. It most likely be from you know, ancient microbes that, you know, that were in the soil when, when the animal died. Well, that's, that's kind of cool, right? To potentially get DNA from, you know, some, from really old microbes. We want dinosaurs.
1: Yeah. uh, You know what, Shane? Microbe park is not cool. There's not a (laughs) microbe park or world. That just sounds like a really bad experience in your kitchen or your bathroom. Uh, (laughs) You should probably clean, but uh, I still want the park, and Dr. Shapiro and I are not friends. Uh, although I'm not down for Microbe Park, I could be down for, like, Wooly Mammoth Village or, <laughs> uh, you know, Tooth Safari. Yeah. Uh, so if we could do that, I, I don't know my timetables on animal shelf life and DNA and all that, but I feel like that was a little more recent than 700,000 years ago, give or take. Not sure, though. Or we could even have... Hey, old seven hundred thousand horse park day, where you can come and bring your kids and check out like what I imagine to be like this really giant, like almost dinosaur-like horse. That's kind of interesting for at least like a day pass. Take money off of that corporate sponsors if you're listening.
0: Oh my God. So it, it it sounds to me like you are really trying to hold on to your childhood really hard right now. <laughs> I want a
1: park. I'm, I clearly can't be the only person that wants a park. With things you can actually see. You can't even see microbes. I I don't know a lot about science. You're the science guy. But micro means small. You can't see that. That's not even a part.
0: Well, you can use a microscope, you know, but I, I agree that it is not as as like viscerally satisfying as having like a real life thing running around eating stuff, you know, that you can, you know, interact with that's that you don't need a microscope for. Okay, so we're at the point now where, you know, the premise as presented in Jurassic Park just does not seem feasible, but is all lost. Is it completely impossible by any means to resurrect a dinosaur? Well, what if we throw away the Jurassic Park playbook as it's presented? Is there any other valid scientific approach that could get us there? So let's hear what, uh, what Dr. Shapiro has to say about possibilities. Yeah, so, so it, it seems like, you know, Jurassic Park, to my dismay and the dismay of pretty much everyone, could never really happen. Um, <laughs>
2: This is the point where, in, when I talk about this and I say, I'm sorry, we're never going to bring Tyrannosaurus rex back to life. All of the children in the audience just get up and leave. Yeah,
0: just heartbroken. <laughs> Absolutely heartbroken. <laughs>
2: Let's give you a little bit of something cool, okay? Uh-huh. So we now have complete genome sequences for 50 different species of bird. And there's a, there's a big consortium that's, that's happening right now to create genomes for all of the different bird genera. We can compare these genomes to each other. And we have genome sequences for alligators, crocodiles, gharials, turtles. These are the outgroups to birds. Birds are living dinosaurs, right? So using computational algorithms, we can actually reconstruct computationally what the genome sequence of the ancestor of all living birds, who would have been a dinosaur, would have been. And then maybe we could start with a bird that's alive today and gradually, using these genome editing technologies, work backward in the evolutionary time to bring something that is like a dinosaur back to life. I'm not this as a great idea, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, you know, putting it out there is something that might be possible.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Okay, so instead of starting with... Dinosaur DNA, what if we start with the fully intact, high quality genomes of their modern descendants, which are birds? So you ask, what is the same and what is different? You know, if the genes are the same, then you can assume that the ancestor that those that those genes evolved from was also the same right now you get this sort of ancestral state of whatever that gene was if there are differences then you can use computational algorithms to ask you know which version came first right and then you get the ancestral state then as you add more species across all the genes you sort of move farther back into evolutionary time and by the time you've included all the species and identified the ancestral state of all the genes, you'll have something similar to a dinosaur genome. I think this is a really interesting idea. know um, yeah, it may not be as satisfying as what we see in the movies, but I think it's the most realistic approach. You know, if we were to try something like
1: this. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I wonder if you're like if someone were to actually do this, then you're are you taking the time to stop and like recreate each animal on the way too? Is that of, of value to, to kind of help the process turn turn back? Like, do you have to go through like the, the, the Turkey, Pterosaurus, <laughs> <or> whatever. <laughs> like on your way back to, yeah. so you know, I don't think you necessarily have to, but it would certainly be
0: really interesting, right? To sort of yeah. see, you know, how all of these ancestral forms kind of progress, uh, you know, throughout throughout a tree. Um, I mean, that would be. Absurdly expensive I mean it would be absurdly expensive just to You know look at the universal ancestor Of of birds You know but to recreate all the sort of transition Points along the way would also be just Crazy expensive
1: Well yeah we just need like a modern day John Hammond right like he said it All the time it's very expensive like,
0: Yeah exactly
1: maybe Elon like- Musk
0: You know yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get into this You know it's like Tesla presents Jurassic Park sort of thing <laughs>
1: Oh, you get you know KFC they like chicken, right? You can like, sponsor a couple of birds on the the way back. Popeyes.
0: Yeah, we'll start we'll start we'll start the movement here. Hashtag KFC dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, so yeah, so we get to the point where you know we have the you know this sort of ancestral genome, right? But studying individual genes or even like an ancient genome is still pretty far away from having. A living dinosaur right so how do we get from dna sequence to a living ancient species let's hear what dr shapiro has to say about this
2: when most people think about resurrecting extinct species what they imagine using is the scientific process that brought us dolly the sheep or cloning the scientific name for that is somatic cell nuclear transfer. What you need to accomplish this, to achieve somatic cell nuclear transfer, is a living somatic cell. So our bodies are basically made up of two types of cells. Uh, Somatic cells are everything other than germ cells, which are sperm and eggs, so somatic cells are liver cells and hair cells and skin cells and all all of the other types of cells that make up a body. In somatic cell nuclear transfer, what happens is you take one of those cells that has a very specific set of instructions that tell it how to be that type of cell. Obviously you need different instructions, different genes turned on and off and at different levels if you're going to be a heart cell or if you're going to be a brain cell. So not all cells are the same. The first trick is to take that somatic cell and to trick it to forgetting those instructions and reverting back into a sort of primordial stem cell, a cell that can start to divide and differentiate and become all the different types of cells that make up an animal. Key to this is that you have an actual living cell that retains everything about it that is there when it's alive. All of the chromosomes are intact. It has a nuclear membrane that's intact. All of the things mean this is alive. I've already said here that once an animal dies, the DNA and all of its cells begin to decay. So finding a living cell from something that is extinct and has been extinct for a long time is extraordinarily unlikely to happen. There are teams of researchers who do believe this is going to happen. They send out excavations to Siberia every year looking for mammoths that are so well preserved they're going to be living cells. I doubt that this is ever going to happen, which means that if one really does want to resurrect an extinct species, one has to follow a slightly different pathway. Now, the pathway that most people are considering there takes advantage of recent developments in genome editing. So while the DNA that we can recover from these bones is in tiny little broken fragments, it is all there. We can and have, for several animals, take these bones that we found in the Arctic and extract DNA and sequence enough of those tiny fragments that we have pieced together the whole genome sequence of these extinct animals. Um, This has been achieved so far for mammoths, for Neanderthals, for passenger pigeons, for horses, and we're working on projects with several other species where we're starting to get these high-coverage genomes of species that are no longer around. We do this slightly differently than you would do if you had DNA from a living organism. We have to use a scaffold of a species that's still alive as a kind of genetic map. So for the mammoth, we have a genome sequence from an elephant. An Asian elephant is the closest living relative of a mammoth, and we have this beautiful assembled genome for an Asian elephant and these tiny little horrible broken fragments of mammoth DNA. And then we put all of this in the computer and figure out where each of these tiny little horrible broken fragments line up best along that elephant genome. And in that way, we can gradually, slowly, and quite expensively build up the sequence of what an extinct mammoth genome would have looked like. And that means we can start to ask how these two animals are different. So you can line up the genomes in a computer, So you have a bunch of elephant genomes and a bunch of mammoth genomes, and you can identify where in those genomes the two species are different from each other. And these are probably the bits that are important to making a mammoth look and act like a mammoth, instead of looking and acting like an elephant. And then, using these genome editing technologies, one can imagine taking the elephant cell, a living cell, growing in a dish in a lab, and gradually, say, cut and pasting your way from an elephant genome sequence to a mammoth genome sequence have to replace all of it. Elephants and mammoths are already about 99% identical to each other genetically, just as we are about 99% identical genetically to chimpanzees. So we don't have to change 99% of the genome. 1% of the genome, if we want to make an exact match, is about one and a half million differences, which is many. Still a lot of work. No, right? So what groups like George Church's group at the Broad have been doing are trying to identify changes that they believe are functionally important. So they've identified 50 different genes that they think are important to having an uh, an elephant-like animal be able to thrive in a cold environment and they are trying to create cells that have those changes. And that's the first step then. The next steps would be Somehow transforming those cells into living, breathing animals, which is a whole nother suite of technical and ethical challenges. Um, but, you know, that is the, the first step.
0: Given that we will never, in all likelihood, recover a living cell from something like a mammoth, let alone something as old as a dinosaur, genome editing seems to be the most realistic road to Jurassic Park. We've talked about gene editing technology before. Uh, I think it was in episode two we discussed, you know, Peter Parker genetically engineering organisms to produce spider silk. Uh, but just to recap, you know, one of the newest methods for genome editing is uh, what's referred to as CRISPR, the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Right? And CRISPR stands for, uh, get ready, this is a mouthful. Uh, CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspersed Short Palindromic Repeats. Say that five times fast. Um, So, but this system is essentially adopted from the bacterial immune systems, right? So bacteria use CRISPR to seek out and destroy viral DNA. And now we use this technology to very accurately pinpoint specific genes so that we can cut and paste different versions of those genes into different genomes. And this has a, a really wide range of applications in medicine, evolutionary biology, developmental biology, lots of different things. But this method can also be used for de extinction, as Beth mentioned. In the case of Jurassic Park, the most feasible way to do this, to my mind would be like once we've used these computational algorithms to design our dinosaur genome, right, we compare the the ancient genome to a modern species that's really closely related or as close as possible, that's easy to work with, something like a chicken, right, then you find the differences between your dinosaur genome and your chicken genome, and then you use CRISPR to replace the chicken version with the dinosaur version of the gene and see what you get. I mean, and all honestly, who the hell knows like, what you know, the resultant animal would actually look like or if it, if it would actually function. Uh, and our technology is still really far away from actually making this a reality, but that would be the most plausible scenario
1: yeah so she said um in the first case scenario finding levels, a living cell to extract is um extraordinarily unlikely uh but also i will take into account in the world words of the uh the famous dr ian malcolm uh life finds a way so <laughs> Wait, i, I agree you-, you that but not it, it's, not, so. it's
0: not alive anymore, is the thing. It's dead.
1: <laughs> life finds a way, Shane. Life <laughs> finds a way. You're just going to hunker down with you that one, two huh? things. Life could not be contained, and life finds a way. Okay. So, oh, okay. All right, there. Yeah. I'm with the guys that are still digging in Siberia. Okay. I can, you know, if anybody wants to do a Kickstarter, toss them a couple bucks. We give VIP access to the first park. Let me know. We can reach out. We know people now. This is episode five. Is it episode five? This is episode four. Four. Just kidding. <laughs> but yeah. No. If anybody wants to chip in a couple extra bucks, send it off to, you know, the, the Kickstarter of, of Dino Parks to help these guys out, we can get that VIP treatment when the park is finally made because life, life finds a way. Okay. That's, that's science as well. <laughs> okay. okay. You know, you're making me nervous. I mentioned this earlier about the whole DNA recombination using different species, plugging in the gaps or whatever, all that kind of stuff. Jurassic Park one, We thought they couldn't breed. And then we did, like, some tree frog stuff where they switched genders or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden, a park full of male dinosaurs evolved into having a couple of females, and they started reproducing. So I'm going
0: to rant for a second about this part of jurassic park okay so as we've been talking about right if you're going to fill in the gaps right of an ancient genome you want to use something you want to use a modern species that's closely related did they do that in jurassic park no they went all the way to frogs first of all Arian, you and I are more closely related to dinosaurs than frogs are. All right. So why, why would you go all the way to frogs to try to fill in the gaps? You know, I guess their, their justification for using frogs is like, oh, how do you get from, you know, from a, a population of all female dinosaurs to a situation where they can actually reproduce? You still, you don't need to go to frogs for that, right? I mean, the most realistic biological explanation is, first of all, you know, birds are the the recent descendants of dinosaurs. And birds are nested within reptiles. And there are several reptile species where the entire species is completely female. There's no males at all in the entire species. And the species, they breed by giving birth to clones of themselves, right? So, again... Even if you stick right around the nearby genomes that you would have access to in this situation, right, you could still potentially end up in a situation where you inadvertently produce what we call parthogenetic dinosaurs, where they're all female and then they just plop out eggs that are clones of themselves. And then those eggs hatch and you just have female dinosaurs running rampant, tearing people apart. Still perfectly feasible, but more biologically realistic. All right, I'm going to stop my rant there. I just needed to get that off my chest.
1: Yeah, that's all well and good, I guess. Um, (laughs) But Shane, have you ever tried to recreate dinosaurs? Because Dr. Wu has from (laughs) the series, and he would disagree with you. Um, You know, but what's interesting, because you did bring up to uh, the point about Jurassic World and the cuttlefish and all that, and, you know, we're, we're far beyond even contemplating this reality, but when an idea exists in the world... For long enough, and people get so desensitized by what was once wondrous and awe inspiring, Jurassic world evolved into this place that needed to constantly outdo itself for the sake of audience and and business expectations and all this kind of stuff and so the you know the interesting corporate element that was introduced into Jurassic World was, you know, what happens when park attendance is down and kids just don't find the idea of, you know, petting the Triceratops mind-blowing anymore. You have to start to genetically modify and engineer and, uh, you know, soup up these dinosaurs into new, like, mind-bending attractions, and so you're crossing Velociraptor with T-Rex, and you're adding in Cuttlefish for uh, camouflage and tree frogs for this and that, and you you kind of really have this designer dino um, factory uh, that's constantly under pressure to outdo its last attraction. Um, And so, yeah, that's clearly... I've been reminded time and time again throughout this podcast that we're not even anywhere near the realm of even considering, you know, anything outside of microbe park, but, <laughs> um, you know, Jurassic world had its, it had its own, um, issues, uh, even just from a business perspective. And yeah, yeah and you know, I, that's sad.
0: Yeah. But, and I, but I, I think you actually, you bring up, I think you hit on a, on a really great question there. Right. So like, and, and that question is like, what happens after all of this, right? After you, you know, you get the ancient genome, you start tinkering with a modern genome to make it more ancient like, you know, with all this tinkering and gene mixing between species is the animal that hatches out of the egg. Is it actually a dinosaur? In the latest installment of the Jurassic Park series, Jurassic World, we sort of see the sensationalized outcome of genetic engineering and cloning of ancient creatures with this Indominus Rex, right, where they, t- they combine strands of theropod DNA with that of cuttlefish and tree frogs to make this really sort of exaggerated creature, right? And at one point in the movie, um, you know, the man who's funding this en- entire project, uh, Simon Masrani, confronts... Dr. Henry Wu, uh, who's the head scientist behind, you know, the cloning and genetic engineering efforts. And Dr. Wu responds by saying that, you know, nothing in Jurassic World is natural, right? And if the animals in the park had their original genomes, they would look and act very differently. So this brings up the question, you know, a major question regarding regarding de-extinction. Like once we get through this process of finding the bits of DNA and filling in the gaps with living species, do we actually have a member of that ancient species, or do we have some sort of a designer facsimile? So I asked Dr. Shapiro a little bit more about how we might view these engineered living fossils. Let's hear what she had to say.
2: You know, this is an interesting question. We can take it in so many different directions. I I think the way that, that I like to think about it is obviously it's not the same thing right? Uh, you, you're creating something from something else. Evolution evolution hasn't gone backward. Evolution has continually continued to go forward, and you've moved genes between lineages. But this is exactly what happens in actual evolution, too, right? I mean, humans are not the same today as we were 100,000 years ago, but we're still humans, and we're still doing the stuff, probably destructively, that we did 100,000 years <laughs>
0: ago. Right? Yes.
2: So I guess part of this is, that's an interesting philosophical question about what it is that constitutes a species or a lineage and how genes should move around but really what the the big question is, what is your motivation for doing this? Is your motivation to re-engineer an actual thing that is 100% identical to a very specific mammoth that actually lived at exactly a specific point in mammoth evolutionary history or is your motivation to recreate an animal that might fill a niche that is vacant because this species has disappeared. Now, in the case of a mammoth, that's ethically, ecologically difficult to, to argue because mammoths haven't gone for a very long time, and ecosystems are not static, and there probably isn't a vacant niche that's just desperately waiting for mammoths to be reintroduced into it. But if a species is very recently extinct, and that extinction has destabilized an ecosystem, and we can see a path toward restabilizing that ecosystem by creating some version of that extinct species or a modified version of a living species that we can then use as a way to help to rescue other species from becoming extinct or to rehabilitate ecosystems or to restore interactions to ecosystems that will stabilize that ecosystem, then this is something that I think ethically we can consider doing without worrying so much about the problem that we're not recreating an exact copy of something that used to be there. There are no exact copies of things in evolution. But there's also the fact that, you know, we don't know what the behavior and physiology and impact of recreating or creating some new species is going to be. Equally, we didn't know what the impact of taking gray wolves and turning them into chihuahuas and Great Danes was going to be. So, you know, where are we? This is the kind of thing that humans do. And hopefully we are now at a point where we can think a bit more clearly and robustly and thoroughly about what we're going to do before we do it, considering this stuff is still not possible, right? Yeah. (laughs) But I don't think it's that vastly different from what we've been doing as a lineage for you know, at least
1: 30,000 years. All right, well, so she brings up some interesting points here. Um, And I think one of the ideas that was even brought up in Jurassic Park with uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm, I'll just keep referring to him like he's a real person, uh, (laughs) was that, you know, with dinosaurs they had their shot like they you know there wasn't any sense of foul play they had a chance at living on earth and natural selection wiped them out and you know they they had their fair shot on this planet but you know god knows we've been so disruptive uh to dr shapiro's point in terms of since the beginning we've kind of we've caused a lot of disruption to ecosystems and to species and so on and so forth. And, you know, the less selfish uh, ambition (laughs) instead of, you know, creating a park for uh, entertainment purposes and and sort of, you know, discoverability and, and educational purposes in that sense would, you know, to think about what's happened ecologically. And if, the reintroduction and the de-extinction of a previous life species uh, could actually improve our situation and would actually be beneficial to the planet. And I, I think that's a, a unique take on it. Uh, and again, you know, she's right. We don't know what the consequences will be. But you know, she also raised some good points, too, about how this is what we do. Jurassic Park is a, a fantasy because, you know, people experiment. We, we meddle, we prod, we poke, we inquire uh, and, yeah. and we think about these things. So, um, so,
0: you know, but even if we get to the point where, you know, we have an ancient organism living, breathing, functioning, walking around in real life, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that we've resurrected that. That species, right. So one of the things that Dr. Shapiro brought up is that you know purpose in this case is, is probably more important than accuracy, right. And a species is not just their DNA, right, but it's the ecological setting in which that DNA is placed, right. So um, you know the you know the culture of you know the species, learned behavior, social interactions, etc. Like these are the things that. know that make a species right if you took you know a child and you know you they were actually quote unquote raised by wolves right and then you try to reintroduce that adult into modern society right they'd be an outcast right and because you know even though they have the same genome more or less right as the other individuals of the species the social context, right, the proper interactions of being a member of that species isn't developed. And we see the same thing, you know, with with chimpanzees and other animals that are born in, and raised into circus life or captivity. If you take those organisms and you try to introduce them into the wild, they have absolutely no idea what's going on, even though they have you know, the basic genetic blueprint. You know, they don't have they weren't. You know, raised by members of their species in the ecological setting in which it matters. Right. So it's like a very complicated set of things to keep in mind when, you know, when we're trying to ask questions about, you know, what is a species and how do we bring back species is that, you know, it's more than just the genes. So given all of this, right, there have been conversations in the real world um, where scientists and conservationists are, you know, considering you know, the idea of bringing back species to certain ecosystems that haven't existed in those ecosystems for a very long time. Yeah, and this is a somewhat controversial topic, you know, but it's, I think it's a a really important topic for issues of of conservation, but also really interesting thought experiments. So I asked uh, Dr. Shapiro a little bit more about this. Let's hear uh, what she had to say. So even if Jurassic Park itself is not necessarily a reality there have been ongoing conversations about resurrecting ancient ecosystems from the last glacial era and releasing potentially extinct species back into the wild what's been commonly referred to as um pleistocene rewilding can you tell us a little bit more about about these ideas
2: Rewilding actually came about before the idea of resurrecting extinct species. This was the idea that, for example, in North America, we used to have elephants, mammoths. We used to have lions. There was a North American lion. We used to have tigers and saber-toothed cats and all of these different large mammal species that don't exist anymore. There used to be horses. Horses and bison were the most dominant herbivores on the North American landscape. And horses went extinct around... Around you know 12 to 14,000 years ago, those same horses were brought back by Europeans when they colonized North America several hundred years ago. And now we have wild horses that are sort of feral versions of these horses that were brought back that have recolonized the ancestral home and habitat of their ancestors. And so this sort of motivates this thought. Well, what if we had all of these different species back? Does having the species, would having the species that used to be here, help us to recreate these? ecosystems that, that also used to be here. I think it's a really interesting idea and it's an interesting philosophical discussion to have and one of the things that it highlights for me that I think is important but often glossed over is what is a target ecosystem? What do we mean by a natural ecosystem or the natural state. I mean, there was a natural state pre-Europeans, and a lot of times we think of that as the natural state. But by that time, most of these large herbivores were already gone. So rewilding kind of pushes this target conservation natural state further back to early holocene or the last ice age and say oh look what was here at that point but then that was the natural state for some thousands of years and then prior to that there was a different natural state and this is this is something that is always evolving and i think The reason that we think so much about it today is we see the impact of increasing human population size and human land use on our ecosystems, and it freaks us out, and it should. right? The extinction rate is higher than it ever has been. We are clearly the cause of many of the extinctions that are going on, and we need to think hard about what our role can be in trying to preserve some species and ecosystems that are still alive today. I don't know if the healthiest way to do that is to imagine some target, ideal, natural state that we're trying to return the planet to. However, does that make okay. sense?
0: Okay. Yes, it does. It does.
1: I think Dr. Shapiro had a, a pretty interesting couple of points there, actually, and even informed me of some things I certainly didn't know as a, a layperson that you know isn't really studying biology or the evolution of um, species and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, as almost a side note, it's like the record skipped. I, I didn't realize horses went extinct in North America.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: That information was wild to me uh, in that they were essentially reintroduced by Europeans. Um, and, and what a, an interesting and kind of, I guess, unintentional to a certain degree example of, uh this concept of rewilding and reintroducing a a species. The second thing that Dr. Shapiro was talking about that was interesting was this idea that uh, life and the evolution of the world um, has presented different states of ecology throughout the course of our history. And not every state, in fact, not any state is perfect. Uh, Every state throughout time has kind of had its own inherent deep problems uh, and granted how we're living uh now with respect to overpopulation pollution and other things of that nature has had some pretty damaging consequences uh there have certainly been other states in the past that have also not been perfect yeah Uh, well i mean that's the thing
0: is that you know there's really no definition of like there there's no such thing as perfect right i mean you know, n- nature is dynamic, right? I mean, that's like the one thing, you know, as, as a biologist that I can tell you is a universal truth about life is that it is... Life finds di- a way? You, if you say life finds a way to me, <laughs> one more <laughs> time, man. <laughs> I get it. It was in the movie.
1: <laughs> it just felt like it fit there, right? Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yes, it's that,
0: it's that one life finds a way And two, that, you know, across both space and time, like life changes, right? And and honestly, that is how life finds its way. Species change, you know, over time and over space to better fit the environments in which they live. Like this is the process of evolution by natural selection, you know, so to arbitrarily pick one point in time and say, this is, you know, what we want to call pristine, this is what things should be. Right. I mean, it it just it doesn't really make any sense, you know, but it makes this conversation a lot more complex if we're thinking about conservation and if we should reintroduce species and, you know, what species we should introduce, Um, you know, or for resurrecting ancient species, you know, how how we should best go about doing that. You know, these are all like really complex conversations that need to be had in order to you know, get to the end goal, you know, but there isn't any real clear answer. And it's something that would have to be taken on a case by case basis. You know, so I think all of this brings us to like the ultimate ethical question of should we, right? So, you know, if not for, you know, the pure joy of entertainment of like seeing raptors and stegosaurus and tyrannosaurus and, Uh, all these things running around then why would we invest in this sort of technology like does it actually you know serve some you know does it give does it have utility beyond just like the entertainment of of seeing something that hasn't been around be it you know a dinosaur or a mammoth is there some utility in in this technology uh let's let's hear what dr shapiro had to say about that one of the the major themes of Jurassic Park seems to be this balance of scientific curiosity versus ethical concerns regarding scientific outcomes. This whole can we versus should we, and to some extent, it kind of draws parallels between genetic engineering and like the Manhattan Project. Right? <laughs> so, if we think about you know this in the real world, aside from just the thrill of seeing. Um, an ancient creature, like a dinosaur or a mammoth, what do you see as the major sort of benefits and ethical concerns of de-extinction?
2: Well, you know, one of the biggest challenges of bringing a species that is extinct back to life is trying to understand what the motivation for that is. Where are you going to put that extinct species, why do you want to bring that extinct species back? If there is a, an ecological motivation for doing this, then maybe it's something that should be considered. If it's just because you want to see something that's extinct and create some crazy park, like Jurassic Park, then it's not clear to me that this is a, a, an ethically sound motivation for doing it. Um, one of the more most interesting, I think, applications of these same technologies is not to bring a species back that is extinct, especially species that are long extinct, whose habitats are not likely to still exist, but instead to use these same technologies to try to help to save species that are still alive today, but potentially in danger of becoming extinct. And the phrase that's often used to talk about this is a phrase called genetic rescue. Um, There's an organization out of Sausalito called Revive and Restore that's very interested in trying to push the idea of genetic rescue into conservation. It really is a very hands-on, gardening, we like to say, type of conservation. And so there are definitely people who are opposed to this. But one of the projects that they've been really spearheading has to do with the black-footed ferret. This is an animal that we thought was extinct, and it turns out it's not. One population of black-footed ferrets was discovered and was immediately listed as an endangered species. Captive breeding programs began and they were extremely successful. These things breed like crazy and they do really well and you can release them into their habitat. And as soon as you release them into their habitat, they get plague and they die. They can be vaccinated against plague but then they have to be caught again during life and revaccinated and this is really not a sustainable way to help this species to become re-established on the on the plains right but the domestic ferret has resistance to plague genetic resistance to plague so one potential solution to this would be to identify why the genetic regions that are responsible for this resistance to plague in domestic ferrets, and then use the same cut-and-paste technology that might be able to transform an elephant cell into a mammoth cell to insert genetic resistance to plague into the black-footed ferret from a related species. This technology doesn't exist yet. There's a lot that would need to be developed, and it's the exact same technology that one would use to bring an extinct species back to life. But instead of recreating something or creating something new for the purposes of I don't know what, instead it's going to be used to try to save a species that's in danger of becoming extinct from that fate. And I think these are the most exciting and compelling reasons to really push forward with this technology. Clearly there are risks to any of this type of technology, to genetically modifying organisms, to releasing these organisms into habitats where we really don't know what the consequences completely are going to be. But for many species and habitats, there is a much greater risk to doing nothing at all.
0: So I think Dr. Shapiro really drives home the point of where the usefulness of this sort of technology comes into play. Like obviously, you know, with Jurassic Park It's really fun to, to think about the possibility of bringing back, you know, these ancient, magnificent creatures that once existed that, you know, no one, no member of our species has ever seen before. Like, the, you know, the sheer thrill of the idea of being able to, to see something like that is obviously, like, very awe-inspiring. But the technology required to do that You know also has really potentially important implications for modern day conservation you know we as a species right now are in the process of of wiping out many many species through direct and indirect actions and the same technology that we would use to potentially resurrect dinosaurs you know or woolly mammoths or other ancient species this is the same technology that may be the key to saving modern-day species that are on the brink of extinction right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dr. Shapiro basically introduced us to the concept of genetic rescue. And I think that there's a couple of things that are, are interesting about that. And from my own perspective, I'd start with the question of why. Uh, if it is a result of human disruption in any way, shape, or form. I think a valid process and procedure to explore. Uh, we have done a lot of damaging things to this planet, uh, and we're only, you know, now discovering just how deep that impact has been uh, in a lot of areas. So when you look at a creature like the black-footed ferret, um, if there's a way to, to kind of help that Creature survive uh and and sort of thrive in its natural uh ecosystem uh, we have the technology to explore ways of doing that i think that's a um, you know an, an ethically agreeable thing to explore yeah um, and i think so, it's,
0: i think it's easy you know when you're looking at individual cases right something like the black footed ferret, you know, I think, you know, it's relatively easy for somebody to come along and say, well, why do we care about this one particular species? Right? Like who cares about a ferret, you know, but the reality is, you know, you know, like I said before, every species is, you know, they one gear in a larger machine that is an ecosystem. Right. And if, you know, we consider ecosystems in the same way that we consider businesses right you know if you're you know if your bottom line is the dollar right ecosystems right our earth's ecosystems they provide for us you know a set of goods and services that amount to billions and billions of dollars a year everything from water purification air purification etc you know and you know no and these ecosystems they are the product of the interactions between individual species and if you take one species out it shifts the balance yeah and this is something that we've seen over and over and over again yeah you
1: know the equal parts fascinating and sad thing that i i find in all of this is that the concept of genetic rescue is Much more believable and palatable and acceptable as a potential reality for me than the ability for humans to change their behavior
0: Hmm.
1: and stop being so destructive when it comes to what we're doing as a species. Yeah. And the extremes. Scientifically, like the, the the brilliance that needs to go into all of this work, with the things that Dr. Shapiro and her team are working on, and countless others around the world, to essentially, you know, cover up our mistakes, scientifically speaking, um, to make things right. That 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 just strikes me as 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 just kind of a, a fascinating reality that we we are willing and capable and able to go to such extreme circumventual, uh depths to make right and make do uh, and, and make good for what we've kind of disrupted, versus to kind of, you know, flip that introspectively and, and address us <laughs> and ourselves yeah. as maybe the, the issue and the contributing factor. Um, so it's kind of an interesting place to be in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, but, you know, on the flip side, you know, I have to to believe that we as a species, as we gain more information and as we educate more people about how our actions are influencing the world around us, that we will collectively, you know, as a modern society, implement more sustainable practices so that going to the extremes of Jurassic Park to, you know, to save you know, the species that share space and time with us, um,
1: you know, is not, is not necessary. Are you saying that as humans, life will find a way? (laughs)
0: That is exactly what I'm saying. I am saying officially that life will find a way. Um, Now what that way is, like, who knows? You know, and hopefully that, you know, we as, as humans will, you know will make that way easier than we have been um for um for the rest of of life on this planet. Well, I think this was a great conversation, man. Um you know, we I think we again we covered a lot of ground. Are you still sad that that Jurassic Park can't be a reality?
1: Yes, I'm <laughs> still. But uh you know, I think Dr. Shapiro's onto something when you're talking about things like um genetic rescue and and sort of using what we can do with science for now uh altruistically. Um I, I think that's really cool work.
0: Yeah. and uh, you know, maybe one day you'll get like Pleistocene Park. You know, with I mean maybe that maybe that'll be a healthy compromise. We'll do some of this Pleistocene rewilding, maybe yeah. mess with some elephant genomes, put a little sprinkle a little mammoth in there for you. Um, you know, maybe introduce a tiger, sprinkle a little saber tooth genome in there for you and, and you'll get a l- little taste of that. We'll see. That's
1: cool. <laughs> I can settle for that. That's a good compromise.
0: Okay, cool. Well, thanks again, man. I always appreciate the conversation. Um, you know, I appreciate you being in the lab with me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait till the next one.
0: Well, that wraps it up for episode four of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. Stay tuned for Episode 5, where we continue our conversation about the epic Jurassic Park series. I chat with developmental biologist Dr. Evan Kingsley about Jurassic Park 3, what dinosaurs may have sounded like, and how we learn about the biology of ancient species beyond what they leave us in their fossils. If you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, The Biology of Superheroes Podcast, and on Twitter, at SuperBioPodcast. So with that, I'll say thanks again, and stay curious.